Father in heaven, Lord, we open our hearts this morning. Please work in us, Lord, that desire not only to hear what you have to say for us today, but to have courage and to take action into whatever you call us to do, Jesus. It is our prayer and our desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Valentine's Day, it's coming. That's excitement, right? I hear it in the room. Valentine's Day brings about what I would call polarizing feelings, don't you think? There is the person who is excited to celebrate with a spouse maybe, a boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, or a loved one. And then there is the person who has all kinds of hate feelings about this silly holiday for making them feel lonelier and more depressed than ever before, right? Thank you, Valentine's Day, for reminding me that nobody loves me, everybody hates me, and I should go and eat my feelings, right? The world around us seems to always, continually attempts to dictate how you should feel what you should value in a relationship, what you should expect from a significant other, even going as far as telling you what you should buy or not buy, and if you don't buy this or don't buy that, then you must simply not love that person. If he didn't go to Jared's, or if that kiss did not begin with K, then it is obvious he does not care for you. That's what the world says. There are so many conflicting messages coming at us all day long from TV ads, from magazines, movies, TV shows, books, celebrities, all around us. And if we let it, they will influence the way we, t- we think. It would change how we perceive our relationships and even influence the way we make choices. Little girls are fed the idea of happily ever afters, a rescuing prince that will come one day and make it all okay. He'll never leave the toilet seat up. He'll be thoughtful. He'll be caring. He'll spend the day with you strolling down the park and not watching football game after football game. She's told that her value is on the outside and not on the inside. Her value is on what she wears, and that is the only thing that will make or break her. Boys are sent messages about about women and what the world considers beautiful. They receive messages about how a woman should look How skinny is the perfect size? How a manly man is supposed to act and talk? Even a seemingly innocent NFL football game sends a subliminal message to boys that men play hard. Women's role is to dance around half naked. Boys are shown how to disrespect the opposite sex, how to get what they want. After all, this is how menly men act, and it is their right. 
They're told repeatedly how to demean, how to devalue women because it's cool. There's nothing that proves this more than the disconcerting amount and number of men that have come up to light now recently have been accused of sexual misconduct by previous or uh, former or, or current co-workers. There's even a, a doctor in one of the most twisted, disturbing stories of the year who was trusted with the care of young athletes and he took advantage of 150 of them for personal pleasure. One of them as young as six years of age. The messages being shared with children are not only alarming, they're dangerous. These messages are shaping an entire generation of men and women. And for parents, it is imperative to communicate over and over what God intended when he created romantic love. If parents don't take seriously the charge to teach their children what is right and what is wrong, the world certainly will take a go at it. So what was God's original plan for deep, intimate, romantic love? And do we even understand it ourselves? Perhaps you, like me, had a poor example of, the, of a healthy relationship in your parents. And so if that is you, then good news. You don't have to make it up as you go because the Bible can truly be your guide and your teacher. The book of Ephesians was written by Paul to the church of Ephesus, and it is believed that the letter did not have a specific destination, meaning it is very possible that the letter was passed around through churches and different believers and different groups in order for that to become a teaching tool from the Apostle Paul. The book is divided in two parts, chapters one through three, and the second half, chapters four through six. These two parts are connected by one word, therefore. Priscilla Shire is one of my favorite speakers, and she says, every time you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should find out what, the, what it's there for because it is there for a reason. So the second half of Ephesians is filled with instructions to the church. Walk in love. Don't live like you used to when you were Gentiles. This is what God expects of you in a relationship. This is how you fight evil and so on. However, it is of the utmost importance to note that before Paul even got to the to-dos and the checklist of Christianity, he spent more than half of this letter reminding the church who Jesus is. In the first chapter, Paul praises God for the gift of salvation and expresses his gratitude that Jesus is continually interceding for all of us. In the second chapter, he recognizes the pit of darkness that Jesus brought each of us out of and the gift of new life that we find in him. 
Then he reminds the church how blessed we are that both Gentiles and Jews are now able to come together in one big family as brothers and sisters in the faith, both afforded now the heritage of being in the family of Christ. Then he says, therefore, in other words, because of what Christ has done and because of what Christ continues to do for each of us, we are able to respond to him in the following ways. And then he proceeds to give instructions how to live godly lives. See, the only way rules work it's when they're wrapped up neatly in the context of God's love and his grace. When you take the love of God out of the equation, you take the rules out of context. When we understand the love of Christ, what he has done for us, how desperately he wants to lavish us with gifts, how he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to hear from each of us. When we understand that, then saying no to the things of this world and looking to do the will of God becomes easier and easier. One of the most popular parts of the book of uh, Ephesians 5, if you've been to a wedding then it is very likely that you have seen or heard these words. In the last half of chapter five, the, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul describes the role God has placed on husbands and wives. But anyone who is married understands that there is no magic wand that helps you forget who you were before, all the past choices, all the past experiences, that formed you, right? In other words, every past choice, every past experience, every habit, good or bad, forms the person you are by the time you say, I do. And that's what you bring to a marriage, for better or worse. That is why before Paul even gets to the part of marriage, he wants to teach the church in general the qualities to strive for. So by the time you get to marriage, you have already developed good habits, godly attitudes, godly qualities. That's why I love what is captured earlier in the chapter, the part that we don't hear very often at weddings. So Paul starts in verse one, we're in Ephesians five, and we're gonna read first uh, verse one and two. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. See, in chapter 4, Paul spent a good amount of time sharing the nitty-gritty of how Christians ought to relate to one another. Walking in unity, using your talents and gifts for God, etc. 
So he continues this thought as he begins now the next chapter, chapter five. Now being more specific about personal relationships with one another. So the first advice Paul has for each of us is this, do not look to imitate anyone except Christ. He says, do you see how he gave it all for us? Look to imitate that kind of love and ignore any other example. That alone is a pretty high standard, don't you think? It doesn't mean that we won't make mistakes, that we won't fall at times. It means look to Christ. Christ becomes your constant goal, becoming like Christ. That is your goal and not looking at the examples around you. So verse three and four, it says, but fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So here he's getting a little more in depth and more into the specifics of what it looks like when someone imitates Christ. Ephesus was a great city. It was in fact the fourth greatest city at the time. It was greatly influenced by Greek culture. And that meant it had tons of wizards and astrologers, psychics, ready to read whatever future they thought you had. This was a highly pagan society, the one that Paul is addressing. It had many gods, many god goddesses, and many, many temples dedicated to these gods. The people Paul is writing to came out of this culture. And so he's saying, if you want to follow God, you have to forget what you've been taught in your past. Follow God's example, which looks nothing like what you have known. The things once permitted and the things even celebrated in your past life, those things are now in your past. Things such as sexual sin, greed, inappropriate behavior, or foul humor, those things are not fitting with the character of Christ. So stay away from those things, he's saying. Later on, he says to them, you were in darkness, but now you're in light. So now walk as if you are children of the light. And as you can see, we haven't even gotten to the part of marriage yet. So this admonition is for everyone. It's for children, for high school students, for collegiate, for every single person who professes to follow Christ. This is for all of us. So let's read on now uh, verses 15 through 21. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things 
to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So immediately after this that we just read, Paul moves on to the advice for marriage. The order of this is no coincidence. See, before you can even learn to share life with a spouse, Paul is saying, learn to walk watchfully, vigilantly, alertly, cautiously. Fools don't pay attention to these things, but you ought to always be on alert, making decisions wisely. Within seven short verses, Paul repeats the, the idea of being wise twice. So obviously, this is an important quality to seek. The phrase, redeeming the time, does not refer to a specific hour of the day or a time of the day. This is borrowed from the marketplace. It is an opportunity to make the most of something, to make an exchange of goods, if you will. You have this many resources, he's saying, Use it wisely. So in essence, Paul is saying to the church, you have a short amount of time before the Lord's return. Use that time, whether single or married, use it wisely. Don't waste time getting drunk or being foolish, but rather always giving thanks. To Paul, gratitude toward God is the opposite of sinning. Think about how much trouble that would save us if we apply that to our lives. Many of us live in a constant, when I get this, I'll be happy attitude, right? I will be happy when I get older. My son says that to me all the time. He's seven years old. I can't wait. I can't wait to be older. I will be happy when I'm in college. I will be happy when I get out of college. I'll be happy when I get a job, when I get a car, when I get a better car, when I get married, when I have children, when these kids get out of my house, when I have grandchildren. We can do this all day long, all year long, all life long. It doesn't change the fact that if we don't cultivate a spirit of gratitude, we will always be unhappy. So Paul says, stop that. Be thankful. You have enough. So before you ask for anything else, Paul is saying, learn to walk wisely. Don't rush into any decision, but think it through carefully. Use your time thoughtfully. Look at the bigger picture. Stay away from harmful substances because they only give you temporary highs that lead you into foolish decisions, sometimes with permanent consequences. Learn to speak kindly and respectfully to others. Some verses use the term submit to one another. And the word submitting literally means to be under in rank a word that comes from the military. This is a far, far more than just showing respect to one another. Prolific author and Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe says, just as an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority, 
So society would be in chaos without submission. So what if there were workplaces without buses? It would be fun, but it wouldn't be very wise, would it? Countries without kings and presidents. I know what your opinion is on that currently, but we're not going to go there. How about a classroom without teachers? I used to love that when I was a child. You know, it was like the teacher's gone, you get up, and it's every, every man for himself. It would be total disaster and chaos, a society without levels of authority. So Paul is saying, Christians, you must think of each other first. Celebrate with each other. Grieve with one another. We are all on the same team. Paul wants to make this very clear before he moves on to explain the order of authority in the family nucleus. And why is that? Because marriage is a walk in the park, isn't it? No, it is not. Marriage is hard. And anyone who says otherwise has never lived with a spouse. Two people from completely different backgrounds coming together, different cultures sometimes, different upbringings, and now you have to spend the rest of your lives together, and then you have to bring up kids while deciding only one way to raise them. It seems like the idea of someone's joke, doesn't it? But if we get it right, if we get it right, the world begins to see the love of God in each family unit. Here's what Paul's advice is to married couple. We're going to start verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So here's that word submit again. And many feminists take exception to this because it sounds as if all authority has been stripped from the role of the wife. But that is not what Paul is saying. In fact, there are even some Greek manuscripts where the word submit is not found. It simply says, wives to your own husbands. But be it as it may, I think of it this way. Other than God, no one's opinion is more important to me than that of my husband's. A Bible commentary puts it this way. You as an individual are not more important than the working of the unit and the team. So there are obvious exceptions to this, such as when a husband is abusive or an adulterer or mentally unstable, so that grants the wife the freedom to either lead or leave. But for today, let's focus on the general rule and not the exception. So let's read now verses 25 through 29. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing 
of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as the Lord does the church. So now Paul compares the marriage relationship to that of Christ and the church. The church functions better when everything it does, every decision it makes is consulted first with Christ. Things don't tend to go very well when we don't consult with Christ, don't you think? So Paul is saying work together in the same way the church and Christ works together. There's a reason why Paul spends so much time sharing the importance of developing a godly character prior to talking about marriage. And this is because if you've taken the time to cultivate godly attitudes before you get married, then you'll be more inclined to find a spouse with the same priorities and the same desires as you to please God. Now, if you've been living for the flesh, you will be more inclined to be attracted to someone else living for the flesh. So men, you are called to love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. And that, it's pretty high standard there, right there. To the point of giving his own life for her. Paul is saying, if you're not willing to go to those extremes for your wives, then perhaps you're not ready to make that commitment. He says, love your wife the same way you love your own body. So tell me this, what amount of money will it take for you to sell a limb or a part of your body? If you wouldn't give up your body for anything in this world, then apply that thought to your wife. Outside of your relationship with God, there should be nothing in this world more precious, more valuable, more important than protecting your relationship with your wife. When you show your wife this kind of love, and when a wife shows respect for her husband, then you as a unit become a living example of God's relationship with the church. The church doesn't exist to please itself. It exists to please God. Godly families are like walking reminders of the love of God, self-sacrificial, forgiving, grace-filled, Christ honoring. The world's message is take care of me, myself, and I. But God's message is show kindness and love towards one another. Put the other person first. Take care of each other. Your family, it's like a military operation whose focused an important mission is to glorify God in every decision, every action, every word shared. 
Author Chip Ingram, uh, Ingram compares marriage to a triangle. He says, because God is the author, you see he put him right at the top there, because God is the author of marriage, the closer we move to God, the closer we move to each other. When God is not the center of our lives, we begin to live for ourselves. But if you take just one thing from this sermon today, let it be this. Our contentment, our satisfaction, our feeling of completion cannot and will never come from another human being. And that includes your spouse. It can only come from Christ. When we ourselves are complete in Christ, we are able to forgive easier, love deeper, and not rely on anyone else for our joy. See, there is no such thing, <clears throat> excuse me, as a soulmate. I'm so sorry to burst your bubble. There only, the only one who can make you whole and complete, it's God. When we put that expectation on someone else to complete us, then you are setting yourself up for disappointment. And you're also essentially calling that human being your savior. And there is only one who can save. There is only one with the power to save and fulfill your deepest needs and desires. And that is Christ. If you're looking for love this Valentine's Day, look to Christ. He is the creator of love. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as dear children. Because you see, life comes full circle. When you imitate God, your children imitate you. The eyes of the world are upon you. Is your life a reflection of God's love? Is your marriage a reflection of God's design for love? And if it's not, would you like it to be? In the past few weeks, Pastor Jeff has encouraged us to read 1 Corinthians 13 every day. In fact, today's sermon, if you uh, did not hear his first sermon, first service, I encourage you to hear it because it is a powerful description of what love is not. So stick around for third service, right? But this week, I encourage you to continue to read through 1 Corinthians 13. And then I'm going to invite you now to read through Ephesians 5. So this week, as the world posts and twits about roses and candies and heart-shaped chocolates, focus on what love is. What does love look like? according to God's plan. And it's right there, 1 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 5. And I'm going to invite you to read through that this week. Compare those two. And then ask God these two things. First, Lord, help me to fully 
understand your unending love for me and your incredible sacrifice on my behalf. When we understand that, then we are more willing to do the next part. So Lord, help me to fully understand your unending love, your incredible sacrifice on my behalf. And then two, Lord, how do I become an imitator of your love? What are the parts that are missing? What is it that I need to work on, Lord? So 1 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 5, Lord, help me fully comprehend your love. How do I become an imitator of your love? Do you commit to that this week? I'm going to commit to that with you. I'm going to pray with you and for you this week that God will transform our hearts into acknowledging the full understanding of God's love and also help us become better imitators of his love. So if you commit to that, would you stand with me as we pray? Father, you have shown us amazing ways in which you love us, Lord. Your love is unending, and sometimes we get so caught up in the things of this world that we don't pay attention enough. Lord, we want to take this week to focus on your unending love for us. We know it is transforming, redeeming, life-changing, and so the enemy works hard to take our attention away from that. And Father, we pray that this week our eyes will be set on you, on your love, on the things that are everlasting. Remind us, wake us up early. Remind us to look to your love. And Father, once we, we begin to understand that, then begin to prompt in our heart a desire to change, to, to walk more closely to you to become imitators of your love. Give us the courage to change the things that we need to change, Father. Give us the courage to love our families better in the way that you have called us to do. We answer this call today, Father. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.